0: Welcome to the podcast of The Urban Mystic. In Season 3, we explore the tension between faith and experience and tease this out as a distinction between faith and relationship. This dovetails well with our value for intimacy with God and encourages us to explore what we can expect a relationship with God to mean for individuals and communities intentionally practicing the presence of God. In this episode, we're joined by Greg Farrant, the director of Second Breath. We're privileged to hear about Greg's early experience of God his later conservation of contemplative practice within the context of ministry and marriage, and his evolution towards the broader Christian wisdom tradition. We highly encourage you to look up Second Breath from the link in the show notes and pick up a copy of the app from the Google Play Store and the Apple Store. Second Breath has done incredible work translating classic spiritual practices into the context of our world and it will benefit anyone looking to cultivate deeper living and loving in relation to their self, others, cosmos and God. Greg, thank you so much for for joining us. It's a real privilege uh, always to connect with people like yourself and others that we're having, but you would be... I think the second person that considers themselves a contemplative at least in terms of the total guests that, that that we've got but you're the first person as a guest that actually defines yourself in in relation to that and actually runs the center and that mm-hmm. and i'm really looking forward into getting into some of that but before we get there uh yourself as a person in terms of your own life your backstory your journey and that where, where did it start for you? What was your early experience of God, and how does that unfold in your life to bring you to where you are now?
1: Uh, that's a that's always such a good question. Um, I I was raised by a family that did not emphasize uh, spirituality. On occasion, we would go uh, to a service, uh, and actually was raised primarily um, in Asia. We lived in Japan and Taiwan, and then we moved back to the States uh, when I was around the sixth grade, and Sixth grades around that age, where you begin to kind of wake up and identify yourself more with your peers than your family. And having lived overseas my whole young life, and then going to America, I didn't fit in. I didn't know the rules. I didn't know the culture. So I always felt like an outsider, and that led to uh, pretty quickly into just trying to numb that anxiety and pain. By the time I was in junior high, and then in high school, secondary school, I was using drugs and just trying to numb numb it. And it reached a, a pretty dark place by the time of my senior year uh, where, I, I, you know, there's that Jean-Paul Sartre quote where he says that man is a useless passion, you know, kind of living in a universe with no meaning. And that's, while I didn't know those words, that's what I felt. And by the time I was a senior in high school, I started contemplating suicide. Outwardly, I looked fine. Outwardly, I was playing lacrosse, doing well, uh, attractive girlfriend, grades were fine. But inwardly, I was just uh, really in a deep space of depression and anxiety and had no idea what to do with it. And it was around that time that a dear friend of mine, uh, who I trusted uh, because he'd been such a good friend for years, uh, shared with me his faith journey. Um, and, and this was in the Washington, D.C. area. This is not a place where you share faith journeys. Uh, this is, that's very private. Uh, but he sensed that there was something going on with me and felt the freedom and really, in many ways, earned the right for me to hear his personal story. And all I remember, is we, were, we, were, we were sitting in this room, and I felt like there was this dark cloud over my head, and I was still inwardly contemplating to end my life. And I did not believe in God whatsoever. And he started sharing about his, his journey in faith. And I don't know what happened. But one second, I did not believe in God. I thought that was rubbish and a crutch for the week. And the next, I experienced, I knew that there was a God. It was like a corner of that dark cloud got lifted. And I saw this drop of blue sky. And it was the most, go- I realized that every time I'd been with a girl or done a drug or anything to try to fill that, hole in me that it was a poor substitute for this this blue sky this infinite mystery that we call god was the source of life and meaning and so it was such a that was when i was 17 i'm, I'm almost 50 now but but that moment when i was 17 defined the trajectory of my whole life uh from that point on um, and pretty much since then my entire journey both personally and even professionally been to kind of explore this mystery that we call god and invite other people into that dance Um, and that's led me from being you know uh, mission work overseas and in in uganda to being uh, for a long time i was a very conservative presbyterian pastor and then ultimately led me now i'm what someone would call a very very progressive uh, episcopal priest to running second breath but it has been a journey that whole way that's kind of was, was a, a trajectory defining event when I was 17. And I think there's a lot of, you know, I know a lot of people have conversion experiences. I prefer to think of it more of as, as a spiritual awakening, um, than a, than a one-time event and many, many awakening sense. But that was probably the earliest time that was, uh, really a tectonic plate shifting moment, uh, in my consciousness, in my lens on life and reality.
2: So Greg, you talk about, um, of the opening experience and you said sort of you're sort of hinting that there's a some follow-ups to that what does the journey look like because you 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 jumped just a couple of years from that moment
1: (laughs) yeah a few decades a few i was was about 30 was about 30 years 30 years of of jumping
2: (laughs) i I trust that's not because uh, there was very little to report in that three decade oh no, no no but um that so that moment, that that curtain lifting moment, you say, or that that uh, the covers just come back, they peel back a little bit, and you see the blue sky. Um, <clears throat> is there anything? Can you take us a little bit deeper into that in terms of of the feelings around that? Is is there some moments of unpacking as you kind of I don't know walk home, head home that day, into that week, and how does that start to? Tell me about the thread that starts to weave from that moment now into your life. Um, How does the story change?
1: Great, great question. And great phrasing of that question. Yeah. The, the, at that moment, it was primarily desperation because I had been standing on the cliff of ending my life. And so this experience of the divine, uh, and in many ways I have a wonderful relationship with my parents now back then, not so much. I, 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 this was the first experience of feeling home for the, and we moved around every two years. I never lived in one place for more than two years. This experience was the first time I ever inwardly felt my body unbrace, And I felt at home. I felt loved. I felt, uh, the first time in on a being level that I felt not alone. Uh, Ever. And, but again, these were just whispers. These were, but these were, but it was so what, what life was. So I remember I, I was terrified of losing this. I was terrified that it was going to be. So, so I kind of with the same vigor and tenacity, really of kind of a drug addict. Uh, I, I quit all the drugs. I remember I went to my girlfriend that like literally within five minutes of that experience. And I thought that, you know, like having sex with my girlfriend was one of the things that was leading me down away from what was good. I walked, marched up to my girlfriend. I said, we're I'm, we're not having sex anymore. I went to all my friends. I said, I'm throwing all my drugs out. I'm not doing drugs anymore. And they're like, Farron, what is going on with you? And I said, look, uh, the drugs are cheap. I just was like, I, I didn't know anything about telling evangelicalism or Uh, anything like that. I just knew that this was my life. And so, but I was terrified. I was terrified I would lose it and I would go back to that place of deep depression and anxiety. So I went after, I mean, I was tenacious. I would get up and this is again, no one told me to do this. I I found a dusty old Bible, you know, some old King James version in the attic uh, and dusted it off. And I, I would study it and read it, you know, for hours and hours every day. Uh, I just was just intense. And then I moved, I graduated high school and moved to North Carolina for college. And that is what in the States they call it the Bible belt. That's where there's a lot of more uh, classic conservative uh, Christianity. And uh, so there was lots of churches. I mean, every town in, in, in North Carolina, like even the little ones probably have at least 30 churches. I mean, it just is on every corner. And, and it was, at that point, because my life had been so chaotic and desperate, I needed a very simple kind of binary faith. So, the one that I glommed onto was uh, G- that that uh, Jesus died for my sins, so that I can go to heaven if I believe in Him. And my main job is to get other people to go to heaven with me instead of go to hell. I mean, that was it. I mean, that's that's all I just thought: if I believe in Jesus, I go to heaven, and I'm, my job is to make sure other people go with me. So, again, that and this was reinforced.
2: Sure. Sounds like you put
1: the core message of
2: evangelicalism.
1: <laughs> right, right. That was, the, that, that, that was the core message, right? It was, a, yeah, it, it was. I, I, I drank the Kool-Aid. And, and in some ways, and now I'm obviously in a very different place now, but I would say I'm grateful for that season because I need, my life had been so chaotic and desperate that I needed for a season of very simple binary faith. it it was a, it was a a stepping stone of my faith journey. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, obviously I look back at that now and it's just, there's so much in my opinion, that is not healthy and very damaging about that, that, that perspective, but at the time it's what I needed. Um, and, and it was around that time that I discovered the, the, uh, this is the kind of nerdy college student i was i I discovered the the commentary by Martin Luther, the German reformer on his, on the book of Galatians and Romans, and it uh, it blew me away this understanding of grace and so it was another big kind of quantum leap forward in my spiritual evolution and I fell you know fully into the reform tradition um, and I I met my wife in college. We got married a week after graduation, and we moved to Uganda with a conservative Presbyterian missions group, Uh, and that's where I started really absorbing much more of the Reformed faith, and then I came back to the States and was working in a Presbyterian church, PCA, Presbyterian Church in in America, very kind of conservative Presbyterian church. Went to a Reformed theological seminary and just went very deep on that. It was, it's kind of like the intellectual evangelical denomination. Like you had to learn Greek, you had to learn Hebrew, uh, you had to you read all the church fathers, but really we're focusing on Calvin uh, and, and, and Calvinism. And so, uh, yeah, they, yeah, they, they all kind
0: of point the way prophetically
1: to Calvin, well, right? <laughs> right. Luther, Luther and Calvin. Pretty much, there, there was Jesus, there was the early church, then a bunch of mess, and then Luther. And, 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 Calvin. and I think uh, similar to some of the
2: view on Jesus in the Old Testament, you obviously pick up Calvin and the uh, early church fathers. You know, he's there already. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, Augustine like and buddies. Calvin, they're so synonymous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really true. So, so it was, and anyway, I was ordained in the PCA and I planted a church. We started with 10 people in the living room and we grew it to a few hundred. And, and which in the Bible, in
0: Uganda. Was it.
1: That- I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. We had moved back to the States at this point. Uh, and this was back to North Carolina. Uh, I went to seminary, was ordained. That took about, I was working full-time at the church. It was about five and a half years. And, and, uh, they sent me to plant a church and, and, you know, churches in, in North Carolina, you know, I know around uh, Europe and in different parts, even in the Northeast and and out West in the States, a church of 50 would be pretty big, but down here in the Bible belt, you know, we grew from uh, 10 people in a living room to uh, over 300 pretty quickly. And, but that's, there's a lot of big churches down here. It's kind of a thing you do, you go to church. Uh, But it was while I was here that it was a denomination where you couldn't ordain women. Uh, where LGBTQ issues were just viewed as, as sinful and and a choice and wrong, and uh, and I started feeling some profound dissonance of my experience of reality with this external doctrinal framework that I had adhered to, um, and but here was here I was this this had been my community they had helped me they had loved me they paid for my seminary they help my family you know they were my friends uh, and and I realized here I was the pastor of this church I had two kids and at this point we had three boys I had two kids in private school and if I change if I reveal that my doctrine is shifting and that I think women should be ordained then I lose my job I lose my benefits I lose my community I lose everything just with a doctrinal so so this wasn't just hmm what do I believe about this I mean this was a critical life moment it's the
0: kind of thing that's really hard to put into words and communicate especially for outsiders um you know that that's something that you know many people can just look on that and say that's a trivial thing but it's quite a deep process to go through especially if that was your worldview to start off with if you started off, that was part of the Kool-Aid that you had to land at that position and then go. And oddly enough, for many people to understand that that ordaining women is possibly more contentious than the LGBTQ in that environment, <laughs> yeah. even. I right. don't know if that was the case in, in, in your environment, but in some cases, that is the case, yeah.
1: That's amazing. And, and, and part of one of the one of the Kool-Aid flavors that I drank, and I didn't realize, but I believe this might have been one of the most harmful aspects of that particular paradigm and worldview, was that you were taught to not trust your heart and to not trust your own uh, I- intuition and reason? If, for example, if if your intuition and heart and your experience is women should be ordained, this makes no sense. There's there's brilliant women in our congregation who went to seminary. They can preach better than I can. Their exegesis is way stronger than mine. But yet they can't. This makes no sense. If if you have a thought or feeling that is congruent with the external theological framework, then that's fine. But if you have one that is dissonant with the external theological framework, then you have to subvert it and subject it to the system because that's your heart. You're being influenced by liberal culture and you have to let it go and trust the trust the system.
0: And, and of course, and think, there's a proof text for that, right?
1: And of course, there's a proof text. So, I mean, but that did so much, I mean, I think that's one of the most powerful forms of abuse is to convince someone they can't trust their own voice, they can't trust themselves. And I don't believe that was the malicious intention, but I do believe that I did that for years. And it wasn't until my need for authenticity, my need for internal integrity, my need for my inside world to match my outside world actually transcended my need for inclusion. I think that I was so afraid to lose my community, my friends, I was so afraid of being rejected, of being cast aside, and this was my whole world, that until, until my need to be genuinely integritous inwardly transcended my need to be apart, then I, I had no room to move. But then it was the, the linchpin, and this is where we get into the contemplative. Of course, my, my wife is the, the rock star. She's the one that leads me into, into so many things, but it, I, I was burning out as a pastor I'd been pastoring for like seven, eight years at this point of this church. I was exhausted. I was tired and I was barely present. And I would walk around like a zombie. And I came home one day and she was standing in the kitchen. My wife was standing in the kitchen by the island and her eyes were red and puffy. She'd been crying. And she said, She said, Greg, it's like, you've got our family locked in this car and you're steering us right for a cliff and I'm banging on the windows and screaming for help, but you're not listening and you're going to drive our family off a cliff. And our, our marriage was relationship was pretty tenuous at that time because I was out four or five, six nights a week because I had this little minor Messiah complex as many pastors do that. I'm the one that has to be there running the show. And uh, we were so exhausted in our marriage. We had young kids, And I knew that she was right, but I didn't know what to do about it. And so I just kind of minimized it. I said, Hey, you know, listen, babe, this is a hard time when people have young kids and this is a church. So it's extra work, but we'll get through it. Like, and I saw shut down and pull away. Like I saw the light begin to go out of her eyes. And I really believe had had something profound not happened at that moment or very near within those, within days of that, we probably would have ended up drifting apart, uh, getting a divorce. I, I, I can't imagine. I mean, we were on a very dangerous trajectory, the two of us of separation. And literally a few hours later, we got the weirdest phone call from a friend of ours who works in the furniture industry. There's a big furniture industry in High Point, North Carolina. And he calls and says, Hey, we've had a a few extra of these amazing, beautiful chairs. Do you want one at below cost? And I thought that is the weirdest call. No, no, I don't want. And my wife heard the call and she's, let me talk to you. Let me talk to you. So she grabbed the phone and heard about the shoe. She said, yes, I want one. So we get the chair and she puts it in our bedroom and she says, Greg, we have three sons and the whole house is so crazy and so full of testosterone that this room, this chair, no one's allowed to sit in this chair, but me. And and I said, that's fine. I said, that's, if, if, if that's gonna be uh, anything to take the focus off of me being a not present husband and burning out in ministry. And we got up the, ne- we got up the next morning and uh, she says, hey, can you take the kids to school? I'm gonna have some time in my chair. And I could tell she was in it for like the long haul, right? She had the cup of tea, she had the journals out, the pens, the box of tissues. And so I come home like four and a half hours later for lunch and I say, hey, babe, where are you? And I hear her voice upstairs. I go up and she's still sitting in that chair like four and a half hours later. And there's tissues all over the floor. And her, I could see like there's ink on her fingers from journaling. Like she's that puffy eyes. She's been crying. And I said, Hey babe, what's, what's going on? And she said, you know what I've decided? She says, I'm going to get up every day and I'm going to spend hours in this chair every day until I either have a breakdown or a breakthrough. And I said, well, let's hope for a breakthrough. And true to her word, The next morning, she was in there three or four hours. The next day, like four or five hours. This went on for days. This went on for weeks. This even turned into months. And I started thinking, she's losing it. Like, right, my wife is losing it, and we're going to get further apart. And then I remember the the very first moment I noticed a difference in her. I was on my way out about 630 at night to another church meeting, which was, as I said, a real source of contention in our relationship. And she came up and normally she would say, okay, fine, have a good meeting. And it'd be full attention, right? And instead she comes up to me and she gives me a full body hug, not an A-frame hug where just our, you know, just our shoulders, but like heart to heart, belly to belly, you know, and she kisses me on the cheek and she says, I hope you have a great meeting. And it honestly, at that point in our relationship, that was probably the most grace and intimacy and connection that we'd had in months and months and months. And it so struck me that I didn't earn that. I, I, I didn't deserve that. She just gave it to me. And I came home for lunch the next day, I, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm getting to the contemplative. This is all really the ramp up to it. I come home the next day and she's in the, the dining room and I had a lunch cancellation. And I hear some classical music playing. I think it was like Vivaldi, like Four Seasons. I, mean, I, I think it was Spring. Vivaldi Spring was playing, which I do love that piece. And she was in the dining room with the, the, the china out and the crystal and the silverware, which we never use. And she had made herself this plate of salmon that was steaming and this beautiful salad with like buffalo mozzarella and, and you know all this amazing stuff all around it, these great heirloom tomatoes. And, and I said, what, what are you doing? What's the occasion? She said, well, I didn't know you were coming home. I would have made you a plate. She said, but I realized my whole life, I'm so harried and I'm so busy that I always just eat a quick sandwich in the kitchen. She said, my time is more valuable than that. And I'm worth so much more than that. So I'm going to really slow down and enjoy myself. And then she just smiled and took another <laughs> big bite of salmon. That's lovely. And, and it was just, and it was, it was like, I was like, who is this? And she started laughing from her belly, like before, like maybe once a week, when we go on vacation, she would laugh from her belly, but this, she was started laughing from her. Belly. So I finally, one day stopped her and I said, what is going on with you? You know, what's happening to you? And she said, she said, it's that chair. She said, she said, for the for hours in that church, she said, for the first time in my life, I feel like my soul's caught up to my body and I'm finally creating space. To, I, she said, I've stepped off the hamster wheel and it's like everybody else is going in fast motion around me. But in this space, for the first time, I'm actually experiencing God's presence. Not as a concept, not as something we talk about, but for the first time, something I'm genuinely experiencing and it's changing me from the inside out. And I saw that change. And so... I, I just did what anybody would do. I didn't know what the heck to do. So I just went out and bought a chair and I thought it's gotta be,
2: it's gotta be the chair. It's gotta be the, it's gotta be the fricking chair. <laughs>
1: Brilliant. And so, so I was so excited. I, I went, I put her chair was in our bedroom. My chair was down in the den. We had little kids. So if we were going to get any quiet time or, you know, time without craziness, it needed to be like, we had to get up at five. And so, the, 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 I remember I was so excited, like for my first morning, the next morning in the chair and I got the coffee maker. That's going to automatically Bruce. When I come down at five, the coffee's already made for me and I get my coffee and I, she goes up to her chair. I go down to my chair and literally as I'm walking to my chair, I realize I have no idea what the <laughs> hell to do in this chair. Brilliant. Like I, I don't what I don't know what to do. Like, all I know is like, I know how to read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. I know how to study and I know how to do, you know, adoration, confession, Thanksgiving. I know how to do the rote prayers, but I don't know what to do. So I remember I sat in that chair and I said, God, you know, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And I know that I'm not going to do all the normal stuff that I have done. So what I'm going to do is every day and at least for 30 minutes, I'm going to sit in this chair and do absolutely nothing. I'm going to be like sunbathing, where if there is an impact, it's because you are flowing, shining, doing work in me. But my commitment is, is nothing time, is busylessness time of absolutely sitting and being still. And it was, so that was my commitment. That was what I was going to do. And I remember my wife says I've got undiagnosed ADHD. And I think she's right. Cause I was probably about one minute into the silence and I was dying. Like <laughs> I wanted to get my, I want to get my phone. I want to turn on the TV. I want to check <laughs> it's a the long news. 60 seconds. You know, I want to do anything except, oh my gosh. And, 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 if, and I had committed to 30 minutes. And so it was, but you know, desperation is a powerful motivator and I was very desperate. And so I did it. And this went on for days and days and then weeks and then months. And then soon that chair, we started calling it share time that, that we would get up and she would have her chair time and I would have my chair time. And soon it became our favorite time of the day. Like I was so thrilled and it started this, but, but I realized like, I was like, Oh, is this, is this called contemplative spirituality? I had no idea. Like I, it was just, I was nowhere in that tradition whatsoever. And I was like a one trick pony. The only thing I knew was to sit and do nothing. <laughs> That's a good start. Um, but I didn't know anything. It was a great start. It was a great start. But I realized I was like, there's gotta be more than this. And I remember I prayed and I was like, God, you know, look, my chair's my favorite time of the day. But then I go on for the rest of my day. The rest of my 24, 23 and a half hours is exhausting and harried. And all I'm doing is living for the chair. I really would like the chair experience to be defining of the day. But how 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 can that be? Can can I jump in there for a sec before? Oh yeah, please. I'm sorry. I'm blathering on. Please interrupt. No, 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 no. It's good.
2: It's I really enjoy when we're able to be in conversation with somebody where we can get a long run in terms of story and experience and just start to soak in where you've been and where you're coming from and where you're going so but there's so many things I want to ask you <laughs> I don't even know where to start <laughs> um, I'm going to try and triangulate something I, I just have a feel about something here that I'm not even sure what I'm going to ask which I, we, Tim and I seem to do a lot. we just kind of fumble around an idea and then Basically, say to the guest, "Get <laughs> okay, back to you. Do something with that." <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: it's working so far. I must admit. So. <laughs> yeah, it's obviously working very well.
2: You're you're onto something. We a trademark that quickly. Although I think politicians have probably got that down. So anyway, moving on. Beginning of your story, Greg. Seventeen, in the room with your friend, and there's this experience, right? And you describe that to me in words that are it's very present tense. You're aware of what's going on, it's very experiential, something is happening, not just in you around you. But you're also relating to something, if I'm not putting words in your mouth, you, you talk about this, this, the sense of feeling loved, belonging, welcome, etc. Then there's this moment, between you and your wife that you talk about the story where she's standing at the island. And there's this crucial moment. And again, you have a relating experience, where you say, you, know, you, you can tell in that moment, that she's pulled back, that something's shifted, something's changed. And then the third element is you say something starts to change. So she, she follows this practice, this chair comes into your life. And and I'm I'm really grateful for kind of where you went with that, because the chair almost takes center stage in the story, and then slowly but surely, there's a shift and the chair starts to fade into the background, and you introduce this concept of she's sitting there in God's presence in kind of in her words, right? But in between the 17-year-old you and this moment in the island, there's a lot of your story around more of the intellectual, the Greek, the Hebrew, the study, the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. Were were there other moments between then and this moment with your wife where you had these sort of deeply experiential things? Um, Were these the ones that really have stood out to you? Um, And how does that carry through into the contemplative time? Because as as much as the chair as vehicle is very helpful, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not always about the chair, well, not really about the chair. And it just fascinates me that you draw out this in my mind. So please, you need to correct me now here when you respond that I'm not putting words in your mouth. I have a sense of like a vertical connection thing going on. There's a vertical relating to in that moment at 17. There's a horizontal relating to the person to person, you and your wife. And then you also start to talk about that third wing or that third element, which is the the internal person to person, the me and myself connection, and that triangle of relating connections that go on. I had somewhat of a specific question in there, but it's a lot, it's a lot broader than that. Can can you go with that? Is that enough (laughs) to throw something back at me?
1: (laughs) Honestly, that, that is your your, uh, definitions and, those, those categories, you could write a dissertation on the complexity and brilliance of that. I mean, that's a great, great, great question. Yes, yeah. no, I mean it, uh, the, because, because it does, it's, to me, it's a, um, I think that authentic religion Tr- true religion, and when we go to the, the you know, not to get intellectual on, or on this one, but or, or, I'm not a big fan of Latin, Greek, or Hebrew anymore, but I used to quote it all the time. But, you know, religion is from the Latin root, re-ligare, and lig- ligare is where we get our word ligament. And so true religion is about reconnecting what's been disconnected and, and remembering what's been dismembered. And, and so the, the faith that I had fallen into down in the South with that evangelicals, uh, worldview, while I'm grateful for it as a stage, it was, it's all fear-based, right? I mean, the, the, the root of it is avoiding uh, hell and, and that God has demanded, th- this infinite creator has demanded a blood sacrifice, uh, you know, for our sins. And, and it's a very anxious us versus them in and out worldview. So I can say that all those years, I, I absolutely had some beautiful moments of tenderness of, I mean there was I mean we went through there was real moments of trauma and pain and suffering, and I would say in those in those dark nights uh, where sometimes my faith was just barely a, 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 an ember that there would be enough there of knowing I'm not alone. And I really do think whether it's evolutionarily because we're mammals or the part of being created in the Imago Dei of a triune God, or whether it is just attachment theory, I think at core, what we really long for is a experience of connection uh, with God, with one another and with ourselves. And I would, I would even say with nature, I would say those, those four pieces are what we long for. And, but, but I, so that's what I long for. And I bought into this system that was primarily head centric, right? So a lot of the church in the West, I think it was Richard Rohr who said that the church in the West has been far more influenced by Plato than by Jesus. And, And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think that we have created these platonic ideals and separation between heaven and earth as holy and sinful, and that we primarily rely on the conceptual. I think, you know, Aquinas doubled down on that with the Summa Theologica that defined a lot of the faith in the West in terms of much more of an intellectual doctrinal position instead of, uh, instead of an actual uh, dynamic experience of love, uh, both received and given. And, to me, the, the heart of, of where what I was experiencing and moving towards was creating space through spiritual practice, through the contemplative. My wife embodied this and modeled it for me. And then my experience was through spiritual practice, we, I created space to shift from mere intellectual belief systems to actual inner experience where I could write dissertations on social justice and the love of God and atonement theories, but it was all in my head. And I had not been given the tools or the compass or the flashlight to walk the inward journey to actually cultivate a vibrant inward spirituality. And information alone will never get us there. I don't care how I mean, we know, I mean, there's a reason they call seminary cemetery, <laughs> right? Because we can take the gorgeous complexity of, of the, the infinite divine and turn it into dusty rote. It's kind of like when you take a, a beautiful little frog and you dissect it and you pin it across, all of a sudden this gorgeous living thing is now just something to uh, investigate and it loses something in the process. That's what I'd done with my faith journey. And what my wife and I discovered in contemplative spirituality, and I would even broaden it out beyond that to the wisdom tradition, uh, which is broader than just the contemplative. That you're then it it gives you the tools to create space in your life to make this shift from intellectual belief systems to actual inner experience, and and so and that's that created space for exactly like you described a vertical connection, although. It, you know, I understand the, uh, philosophically yeah, God yeah. is more uh, up. You know, but I would say this. Uh, you know, yeah, this we're immersed. analogy yeah. is
0: helpful, but it's not right. It's, it's a very, not, it's a very helpful it's not accurately analogy. That, descriptive, yeah. <laughs> right,
1: right. And so, right, you know, I love that language of Paul when he's speaking to the philosophers in Athens, and he says that in God we live and move and have our being, and that's the language of immersion. That's the language language of saturation. And, and he didn't just say that this person's in and this person's out, like we're, everybody is immersed. We, right now we are marinating in divine love and presence. And, and to me, the true religion and authentic spirituality is about healing the delusion that we are separate from God, that we are separate from each other and separate from ourselves. And I would say separate from creation too, that we, we're completely, whether it's physics and biology or spiritual, spiritually, we're intimately connected with one another with all of creation, with God, and ourselves. And when we create space through spiritual practice, that shifts from, again, oh, that's a nice concept, too. I'm experiencing that deep connection with myself, with my wife, with other people, and with with the divine. And so I would say that you're, the, the, those categories that you created are, are, are really gorgeously talk about what, what I believe is the ultimate point of healthy spirituality and healing that rift, the delusion that we're separated. I don't believe we're separated. I believe we're, we have a delusion that we're separated and that the spiritual journey is one of slowly healing from that delusion and realizing that we're intimately connected. And we have been the whole time.
0: There's, there's often a, um, an interesting, um, There's a difference between uh, almost like a naive and simple disconnection, uh, which is mirrored in a naive and simple understanding of connection and oneness. There's a lot of relational engagement, disengagement, moving towards one another, moving away from each other, both in our relationships with ourselves, with each other, the cosmos, and God. And so in some ways, I I feel like the, the it it becomes an abstraction. A lot a lot of people go, oh, we're all fundamentally connected, and they emphasise that. And I, I just have to poke it a little bit, and what comes out is their loneliness, their fundamental disconnect in their relationships, often with themselves. And their love for themselves is the tool that to, you know it, you, your love vehicle for yourself is the vehicle through which you love cosmos, God, others as well. So. So I, I genuinely think that there's a there, there, there's a point where the, where the legalism and the naive legalism, like, you know, in your early journey, it's easy to go into a binary environment, you're in, you're out, but then at some point as we mature in life, um, it's just a natural part of the progression of life, we move from the binary black and white, simplistic ways in which we see the world, where we have all the answers, and then we realize <laughs> at some point that we actually don't have the answers, but we want to live life in a deeper way and a live life in a more authentic way. And that's there's just a natural progression in life through that. Um, in your reflection, you reflect back to going, you had this tension. And at the point that you wanted a deeper integration, you realized you almost needed to portray people that had supported you and the movement that you'd been a part of to a point in that. Um, uh, uh, what's the time frame between you being able to look back and go, oh, this is where I was at, and yes, what I was really after, compared to when you were there, and how clearly did you see that when you were there? Does it does it make sense as a question? Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, just listening to myself sense. in retrospect going, I'm, I hope this <laughs> makes sense to you because <laughs> yeah, I'm my way. If I can add to that no, as well, it, it, I'd love no, to. No, it makes sense.
2: Just if there's any particular parts of story that you'd be willing to share around that time in terms of that, because that, Exactly as Tim describes, and as you talked about earlier, Greg, that uh, I'm trying to think of your exact language, but the idea of basically wanting to belong, you know, within the community, but this dissonance going on inside of you and, and that and, and that sort of reverberation between the two, as that played out, I'd just be interested in any stories you'd share around your experience there.
1: Well, yes, I think that I was hesitant to change on a community level because I knew I'd be rejected. I knew that, especially in the Southeast, if I would leave the circle, then I would kind of be at the very least a uh, capital L liberal, which was a curse word for, to them, uh, To you know, or persona non grata. I would also lose my salary, lose my benefits, lose my community, all these variables. And also, you know, neurologically, we're we're kind of hardwired to not change. You know that it it you know there's a lot of research that just says change in the brain is very challenging, and usually it takes desperation. Usually it takes something circumstances that poke holes in our existing paradigms to the point where they no longer hold water, and we go through that desperate deconstruction and reconstruction. Uh, well, I would say one of the most poignant moments occurred when I was pastoring the church. Uh, I, I literally, my body just tensed up when I started telling a story and I'm, I got a lump in my throat because it's still raw, even though it was, you know, uh, 16, 16 years ago, there was, there was a couple that started coming to church at this point, maybe we're about a hundred people. And, and at that point in a church plant, like e- it's all hands on deck, everybody's hanging out. Everyone's having cookouts at each other's houses every weekend. You're all part of the music. You're all part of the setup and takedown. Like it's this really glorious dynamic of connectivity and it's all new and you're on this sharing this mission together of making this thing happen and this couple came in and they dove right in and they were amazing and they both also happened to be women it was a a gay couple and at this point I started like I knew what our doctrinal stance was as a denomination but I didn't feel comfortable with it like the like to me I just thought we kind of went with a don't ask don't tell like I didn't tell people that we were the PCA I didn't uh, talk about lgbtq issues i just kept it on the down low and i just thought well maybe it'll all work out you know and and they were there they were part of our community for i don't know maybe six months and they came to every event every dinner every party every outreach and they felt so this was they were in their mid-40s and this was, they said this was their first church experience and they felt so loved so accepted and so excited to be a part well one sunday after church uh, uh, maybe about three or four in the afternoon i get a call from one of the people in this couple and she says, "Greg, uh, is it true that we're in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America?" And my chest—I I froze. And I said, "I said yes, 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 we are." And she said, "Well, I went and looked on the national website, and it is clear that their doctrine says that homosexuality is a sin. Do you believe that my relationship with my wife is a sin?" And I hemmed and I hawed and I said yes and I said no and. But at the end of the day, she knew I, I was totally exposed and she, she and her wife were devastated. I mean, just demolished. They they were weeping on the phone and they were so furious. They said, you have uh, brought us into this community and we felt so loved. And And this is our first church. She said, we are never coming back to your church and we're never going to church again. And then, then she made this comparison. And this is what, I mean... I don't know her own journey and story, but th- this was the most poignant language she could use to me to describe the the ab- spiritual abuse she suffered under my leadership. She said, "You are like uh, a man who has lured us into a van with candy and then raped us." And and then she hung up the phone, and I almost threw up. Of course, I mean, I just I thought, okay, I got into this whole world to create space for people to connect with the divine. And I want people to know the love of Jesus and allow that love to flow through them and experience. And instead I have created maybe mortal spiritual wounds in these people. And, and it was, it was, it it shattered me that moment. It shattered me apart and it shattered me open because I thought this cannot, this is so dissonant with my own experience of the divine. This is my own experience of uh, spirituality and my own reading of Jesus in, in the New Testament, that this cannot be it. And so it really did light a fuse to re-examine everything. And that was just one of the kind of traumatic experiences under that oppressive fear-based system. And, and it was in that that time that I, then I started wrestling with okay how do we know what's true which of course philosophically theologically it's epistemology but this was now abstract i started saying okay how do i actually know to what is what i choose to believe is true and that's that started a whole new journey
0: i i think also you know when when outsiders hear a story like that it's easy to assign blame and to put you in a box it it's very hard to to understand how um People come to faith and it's a natural thing to push people into church it's a natural thing to have an experience of jesus and and land in a community and we don't join them knowing what we need to check for what we want to check for or even how so you kind of get conscripted into everything that they stand for and then at some point you've got to start you you start at some point it's natural to start questioning it. You know, it's like Jesus leads us into the desert of the church, into the desert of faith to process these things. And so it's really hard to live the tension of going, I want to communicate something, I want to create space for people, I want them to experience God, and then also have to wrestle in the background with a movement or a stance that the movement has that you're not allowed to raise and you're not allowed to question. Um, you know, because it's incre- it's as destructive to you, even as a heterosexual, as it is to the homosexual. And yet, as the heterosexual, it's almost like you can't even voice it. Why? Because you're not even allowed to. And so, th- there there are complex layers to this that I just I just I just want to acknowledge. You know, and um, just just throw out there as well. I mean, I, I I said to someone the other day that I, you know, you, you don't need religion to 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 abuse people, like you know, because even raised in a non-religious way. We knew how to treat gay people when I was growing up, and s- some of them are never going to recover from how we treated them. And, uh, and at a certain point, as a, as a young person, the way we treat people is, is, is a mark of pride, especially being able to break people. And then at some point in life, you go to go, shit, how do I own that? How do I change that? What do I do? And so that process of transformation is, is one way to, to grapple with the love and the grace of God, to, to grapple with the question of sin in the broader sense of the word and its impact on our relational integration within ourselves, our community, our environment, or the cosmos, God, etc., etc. It it's not a binary in or out. Again, you know, we move from this hard binary to this nuance, we, we we become like God and, and having to figure out the difference between good and evil in all these different ways, you know. Um, you know, I think theologically, there's a lot of emphasis on Imago Day and 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 virtually nothing on Similitudo Day. And that's mm. something that the monastics, <laughs> mystics pick up over the years and that nice. they wrestle with. Um, nice. Sorry, nothing yeah, coherent, I, coherent there. I just, uh, no, no, no. That, <laughs> I, I think that from really, <laughs>
1: well, I also, I also feel like it, because I'm sure that story is uh, triggering uh for, for people that might have experienced similar abuse. And to me, I take, of course, that wasn't my intention, but intention doesn't uh, excuse the reality that they were wounded and, and deeply. And so, and by, I mean, deeply, I'm so grateful years later, we were able to uh, reconcile and, um, which I'm, I'm so appreciative for. And, and, and fortunately by that point, my own journey had evolved to where I was not trying to convince, I mean, it just was a genuine walking through that, uh, what happened together and, and reconnecting and forgiving, they forgave me and, uh, and healing that relationship. But, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that opportunity. And, but, but that was, uh, to, to, to Steve's earlier question, that was an experience, um, that, that, that broke apart, that started breaking apart the existing paradigm, uh, broke it apart. And I would say broke it open and again, had me questioning, okay, I've, how do I know what is true? I've allowed my entire reality to be defined by this one particular theological perspective, which is so incongruent with my experience of reality. And now is causing deep wounds and harm to people that I love. So that's where, and then, and because I'd been told not to trust my heart, but now I started the, that that's around the time the chair situation happened. And, uh, in that, in that chair time, I actually started to trust my heart. I started, I, you know, the, the kingdom of God is within that, that this idea that it's not just uh, jettisoning my intellect to an external framework or experience to an ex- external framework, but trusting what's happening within me. And I remember once I said, I'm actually going to trust my heart. Now I want to look at tradition and I'm going to of course appreciate scripture and i'm not going to do something wacky you know i'm going to trust my community if i start saying something wacky but i'm actually going to trust my heart and my heart wants to ordain women because it just makes sense and my heart wants to embrace the lgbtq community and if there's two people that love each other and want to get married and figure out what it means to grow in vulnerability and trust then then I'm going to marry them. And I don't care if they're gay or straight or by bi- this to me, it was, how can I, cre- how can I genuinely create space? So, so people ask me, I had a very quick shift from a conservative Presbyterian to someone so far to what the people would describe as to the left as again, I'm in the Episcopal church now as an Episcopal priest, and I'm probably on the prow of that ship, you know, sometimes barely hanging on even to that, that definition of Christian tradition. And they're about as open as you can go, in many ways. And but but it happened rapidly once I realized I'm actually going to trust my heart. And since then, and I and I let these hindrances, this this external framework, slough off like like glaciers melting, and the weight fell off me. And I finally felt that congruence between my inner journey and the outer journey. I quit that job. Uh, my, my wife gave me the support and care to say, look, I, you know, I know we have kids in private school. I don't care if, if we end up in a one bedroom shack, but if, if, if you're present and actually present with me and the boys and are living from your heart, then I'd rather us be, you know, living on a, a dime than us remaining here with all these resources and you're miserable and living incongruous. And so that, that gave us the courage. We leapt off that cliff. Uh, we had about savings for about four or five months worth of living. And it was a decision born of faith and desperation and foolishness and stupidity and hope and uh, so many things. And I was watching that and, and heart and heart. And it really, to me, to me ultimately it was a gr- it came out of that deep times of contemplative prayer and sitting in stillness. I, I felt a deep abiding trust that this was, uh, it was a cliff to jump off of. And, and it was amazing to watch how it all worked out. Not only worked out, but it was like, it was finally live, moving towards environments where the external matched the internal. And it was amazing to watch the provision come in. It was amazing to watch the f- new friendships, even as people were calling me heretic and liberal and all these things, the new relationships. Uh, I discovered uh, second breath, which again just not to go full circle but when i was sitting there in that chair i was a one-trick pony the only thing i knew how to do is sit quietly and i said i want to learn more about spiritual practice and more things that i can do all throughout the day someone that next day told me about uh second breast center in greensboro north carolina and it was for 30 years they'd been teaching spiritual practices rooted in the christian wisdom tradition and it was i went to this class and i was given like this toolbox overflowing of practices to get off the hamster wheel and actually connect with heart and grow an awareness of that connection with divine ourselves, others in the cosmos. And it was a total game changer. I mean, it, it, it took me off of, you know, life support and actually refilled the tanks. And my wife said to me, I don't know what you're doing in the second breath classes, but please keep going to them because they're saving our marriage and they're saving you as a dad. You're actually, you're, you're, you're present with our boys for the first time in years. And so, and I, and I really do believe that it's because of, creating space for contemplative spirituality and and for spiritual practice. Greg,
2: you you talk about the time in the chair. I'm going to take you back to that statement and this Mm. cliff that you had to face, right? The cliff, I'm going to just take it in little chunks. So the cliff that you were at, then it becomes somehow, this is not your language, but I pick up almost this progression. Like there is a cliff then it might become a cliff. Then it becomes perhaps a cliff that you might jump off. Then it becomes a cliff that you will jump off. I don't know how fast that transition is or whether it's all just in an instant and whether I'm, I'm you know, I'm concertine-ing in ing it out for no good reason. But but in those moments in the chair, is, is there a growing sense of this? Does it come to you in a flash? What is that experience like? And I'm specifically interested in, if there is, specific relating to God moments of the sense of connection around, yes, this cliff. And people use different language around those kinds of things. You know, we we talk to different people, some people talk, they almost use, um, I want to say Luther, but it's not Luther, Wesley's language of this, you know, the strangely warm, there's just a shift internally. Some people talk about voice, they talk about presence, they talk about serendipity, there's all sorts of things, this language that we use around this connection of divine. But as I listen to your story, something changed. And it's not just in terms of how I hear you describing it, it's not just that the dissonance of your internal life, and the system within which you were living got so much that you blew a tire and went off the highway that was part of it, but there's these <laughs> yeah, moments that, in the chair that was that part was of it. Talking You're right about it. I'm just, if there's anything there that you'd like to share around what, what came out of that, because the, the way in which you describe it now, I'll kind of wrap it up here is it sounds almost like an engine room. Like that's almost where things got distilled down mm. to, to kind of a, a real Mm. working space and, and, and energy sort of erupted out of that place. That, that's what I pick up from you when you speak. I might be wrong, but I'd love to hear your thoughts in response.
1: I, I really appreciate that. One, one thing I learned uh, very early on was, and I've, and I've heard this sense, a lot of people want to do contemplative practices and want to, it's kind of like dieting or exercise and they kind of feel bad that they don't oftentimes. And, and I think a lot of times people give them up because they have a criteria for evaluating what a success and, and.
0: Well, yeah, usually it's like trying a salad for the first time. I tried it once. I didn't lose 15 kilos. I'm never doing this again. (laughs)
1: Exactly. (laughs) Well, right. I mean, people, people kind of sense that they're, when they are done with their time of, of uh spiritual practice are supposed to feel better their blood pressure is lower their heart rates at ease and they feel a greater sense of peace and that maybe happens one out of ten times i mean it just or maybe one out of a hundred i mean if we, i always tell people you have to take your criteria for evaluating efficaciousness of spiritual practice crumple it up and throw it out the window because if you're looking for the experience in the moment on occasion, and I do have some tectonic plate shifting moments of mountaintop, I do have those experiences. But I believe that spiritual transformation is far more and not like tectonic plate shifting, but I think it's far more like gently lapping waves that just move a few grains of sand at a time. And in the moment, the change is imperceptible. But you go back to that beach six months later, and the whole landscape is transformed. And and when when and I and I just trusted, I had this deep sense that even if I would get up from my time and I'm more anxious and more hyper and more angry than I was when I sat down, I trusted that underneath the surface that God was doing the work that I needed and that ultimately the transformation would be realized primarily in hindsight, not necessarily in some mountaintop experience. That's what happened with my wife Beth, and that's what, what my commitment was. So there was, I, I would say, mostly it was this willingness to sit in that chair day after day even when it was driving me crazy and i'd get up pissed off because i had or i thought about a conflict i was dealing with or what a dumbass i was in that meeting or whatever it was that i would trust that underneath the surface of my consciousness that god was doing something that it was exactly what i needed so i would always end my prayer prayer time with god thank you for that perfect time of prayer no matter what, because it was just, and what I found was that gave me the uh, resilience to stick with it, even when I didn't immediately see the quote unquote fruit or evidence of efficaciousness. And that I think is the linchpin of where real change occurs. And, and I said, the first time I noticed a change was when I was driving and I'm a pretty relaxed driver. I, I don't get angry very easily, but uh, for some reason, the one thing that really pisses me off and makes me angry is when there's—I'm—I'm going to change lanes, and there's plenty of room for me to change lanes. But I—I'm trying to be respectful, so I put it my blinker on, <laughs> and the person guns it, <laughs> that closes the gap, so I can't get over. When I could have gotten over, I just was doing this out of respect for them. And then they close the gap. I would get, for some reason, that would oh, I would cuss, I would yell. I mean, it would drive me crazy. And I remember the first time. This was at maybe I've been doing my chair time for a couple months. I was driving and I put my blinker on and the person gunned it and closed the gap. And my first thought was, Oh, they must be in a hurry. And I didn't get angry. And I just, and then all of a sudden hindsight, 20, I was like, Holy <laughs> shit. When did that change? When did, when did I shift from being so angry to actually thinking about, I wonder what's going on in their life. And, and soon it started being a lot of these, these micro aha moments uh, of change. Now, granted, probably one of the most poignant, occurred when I was in a time of centering prayer and I had this experience. I always I didn't want to believe it, but I always kind of believed that God was up there, out there somewhere. Like you know, in Paul's third heaven of the Ptolemaic system, you know, God's up there out there. And we pray like a walkie-talkie, but God's kind of distant. And I wanted to believe that God was with me, but I didn't really believe that on an experiential authentic level. And I had this time of prayer where it was almost as if this mist uh, I was immersed in this mist that was the presence of God and every breath was breathing God fully in. And then this as just as oxygen is connected and flows through our entire uh, system, that God was intimately connected with me closer than my thoughts closer than my breath. And I was, it was such a gorgeous, beautiful experience. I was searching for words to express it. I was like, Oh, that's right. This is connection. I'm not alone. And And so there were some big tectonic plate shifting moments, but most of the time in that chair, it was me wrestling with boredom, ADHD, falling asleep, and just desperately committing to sit there day after day. But over that time, I did experience, just like my wife started belly laughing, I started experiencing this shift where it actually became my favorite time of day because it was like, again, my body was embracing. I was experiencing a sense of contentment on the inside for the first time. I was experiencing my tank slowly starting to refill. I didn't know how it was kind of mystical to me, but I just knew that it was something about being still. And, and then soon I started gaining a confidence and trusting my heart. Uh, And I started trusting my own voice and having the courage even to say, you know what? I think that this, this infinite God of the universe is big enough to carry me, whether I'm foolish or whether I'm just in trust, but I think I'm going to go tell my wife, I want to quit this job. And that's when she was supportive. And, and the fact that I have a wife that was doing the same thing on this mystical kind of commitment uh, of creating space was such a, a, an amazing gift. And still to this day, like I would say, we, we still get up and have our chair time every day. Now, this, that was, this was 13 years later. It's a daily thing for us. Uh, and, and we still do it together. We get up and get our coffee. She goes to her chair and I go to my chair. And we all, our faith journeys have moved us to kind of different places, you know, in, in our own exploration and experience, but to have a partner to go there with you, I, I think had, I, had she not been supportive, I don't know, I probably would have self-destructed like a lot of pastors do, like maybe had an affair or something to blow my life up to get out of it. Uh, but, but fortunately, you know, because of uh, her presence with me and her leading me into chair time, into the contemplative it, it, it created that space for that, that shift. And I would say again, it was more like those gently lapping waves, but over months there was a deep growing, abiding sense of connection, trusting my heart and, uh, and and connection with Beth that gave us the courage to jump off that cliff. And so there was a lot of moments of terror since then we've jumped, jumped off a lot more cliffs That that was probably the most terrifying one in a technicolor sense because of the young kids and the private school and the no idea how I was going to pay the bills. Um, but but I would say that, that really gave us the courage. It was, it was a deep sense of knowing that was like from the gut, from the body, from the heart, and not just some intellectual process of sure. pros and cons.
2: Thank you, Greg. I appreciate all of that, in, uh, that insight and in response to my question.
0: We, we do live in a culture that, um, you know, we can talk about within the context of faith, where they go, you don't trust your experience, you don't trust your intuition, but as a society as a whole, we don't trust this language. Usually, ends up being subjective. It's entirely subjective experience. Uh, you know, um, hey, I never get to play the devil's advocate. I never get to ask this because I've, the shoe's usually on the other foot. So I'm I'm just gonna th- go to throw it out there at you. <laughs> 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 when <laughs> yeah, good, good when when that gets thrown out, it, it's almost like people are often schooled in one thing over another. So they may have an appreciation of psychology. So they would go, Greg, that was good psychology to have a time out alone. We do that with two-year-olds, and it works for adults as well. On the other hand, one can go, it's good training. Because if you spend time practicing interoception, uh, their internal awareness of your bodily systems and your emotional processes, you're going to gain an aware of it and you're just going to get better at being present. So, you know, contemplation, mindfulness, it's all the same thing. Other uh, people will go, God is potentially just a projection. Um, so people are projecting the, the idea and you're just making it up and then eventually you just evoke the experience. You know, it's like wanting to be happy and focusing on or wanting to be sad and focusing on it. So you're going to change your emotional climate and that's going to happen over time. It's very hard to convey when trying to summarize this kind of contemplative thing and communicate the experience that in part all those are true but that's not actually what's being communicated here and it's also hard to connect that initial engagement of an awareness of the divine of the transcendent of god of that personal engagement here and for some people when they get into the contemplation they lose that personal. And you see that in, in, in a lot of environments where people, the underpinning, of the philosophical underpinning of what they're talking about differs because they're referring to the impersonal. Or well, the ph- philosophical underpinnings differ because the connection with the self is what we project. And we go, well, really, it's my connection with myself with God. There's some kind of quantum entanglement that we experience that they were referring to years ago. And then there's, there's others where, 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 where people go, no, there's a sense that the, the Creator is a person. And although everything is a fundamental unity and there is no difference and God is omnipresent in that, there is still a difference in terms of the relational engagement. And uh, fundamental unity of all things and myself and all things and the illusion of disconnection or the frustration of disconnection or the consequence of disconnection, however I, I interpret it, there's still a relational gap that that can be closed, and this time is is a part of that. So. Um, I mean that's that's a loose summary of uh, two and a half thousand years of uh, contemplation <laughs> around the globe, <laughs> and it's a wide yeah. canvas to take a stab off of without saying anything specific. But <laughs> over to you.
1: <laughs> no, no, I appreciate that. No, I've I've wrestled, of course, with the same thing i'm just thinking. You know that if this is just because I, I didn't have a solid sense of attachment with my family unit as a child. And oftentimes I, I I've seen, uh, some research that indicates that people that have uh, kind of technicolor, uh, conversion experiences, uh, usually had uh, poor attachment. Um, and so maybe it is purely emotional and psychological, or maybe the experience is purely, uh, biological, uh, or neurological that, that might be the case, you know. I, 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 I you know, but I think the the, the place where I am,
0: although, although c- c- certainly that the we all share the same cognitive framework and biological systems as as, as human beings, right. and in essence, everything that we experience is is is, is through that. But I, I find, uh, uh, you, you know, in some ways, what what we lose is the sense of a relational connection, and so one of the great inventions in modern time is you know good old Elon Musk's probes in the head and that great thing and mm. and <laughs> from that perspective whether i visualize a mouse cursor moving or i'm actually moving a mouse to move of a cursor like it's immaterial because the probes in the brain can basically go oh that's your intention i'm going to translate that for you so, so we we live in a world where we've narrowed things down and divorced the 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 uh, what happens with the within the structure and the integrity of the human body alone? We've divorced that from the relational connection that we have, and so as human beings, we can relate to ideas, we can relate to objects. I have a deeply personal relationship with my phone, you know, like <laughs> don't take it away from me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but but I also relate to persons. But then I can have a relationship with the idea about a person and have conversations that fill in the blanks. And and not actually relate to the person as well. One of the great things about mindfulness like this is that it it helps sift through those things and ma- enable one to get present to those actual relationships. And one of those actual relationships that we can become present to is the relationship with God or the potential of it. Th- there's often a difference between people who weren't kickstarted with an awareness of the divine. And then you arrive at going, well, what am I looking for? But that's different to people who are kickstarted with that, who go, the absence that I experience is a, is, is a trough. Uh, I heard a voice that is, that is now quiet, and I want to go back to hearing it. So I'm going to practice contemplation to go back to mm. that. That differs to people who've never had that experience and going, well, I don't even know what voice I'm looking for, and those people are crazy. So, what am I looking for? I'm looking for the health benefits out of it. So, th- there's a bit of a difference there. Um. Any, anyway, uh, sure. Back to you. <laughs> like, yeah.
1: No, no, no. I, I that I, I love that, and I and I do think that um, there there's there's so many pros. I think on on a uh, kind of on a non dualistic uh, through a non dualistic lens, I feel the freedom of the mystery of uh what validating those different perspectives and what may or may not be happening to me but of course the only thing that we can talk about with any actual authority is our own story uh and in that process to me the i believe again primarily in the west but i think it's 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 uh, a very uh contagious uh cultural assumption is that we become uh very head-centric and we have uh metabolized again the belief that uh the idea of something is the thing itself again there and and that's why i really genuinely believe that so many people have not been equipped uh to cultivate authentic connection which is i do believe again whether it's just purely biological and mammalian or whether it's because we're created in the image of a triune god or all of the above, that we are desperately in need of that connection. Um, it is it is hardwired into our systems, and study after study shows that that isolate the, the, the damage of isolation. There's a reason they put you in in the the isolation in prison is one of the worst punishments. You know that it, it it does great harm to you psychologically and physiologically. And and in my experience, what I love to do, and I and I speak to Christian groups, I speak to uh, secular groups. And the nice thing about uh, contemplative uh, practice and mindfulness is I can nest it in, in whatever context, the wisdom tradition was in, you know, in, in every uh, great religion and all of the big religions have the wisdom tradition of, of kind of inviting to the mystical heart of things. And what I find is I don't really care what you call it, but if I, if you'll be willing to create this space, then you are going to have over time an experience of life off the hamster wheel and a growing awareness of the present. And in all the years at at Second Breath, it's, it's 30 years, in all the years that we've been teaching and equipping people with spiritual practice, we've never had someone that puts practices in place in their life that hasn't experienced some form of transformation. It's just the way we're wired. And to me, it's creating space to get in touch with your heart and in touch with your body. We do a lot of research and science too, so we, we we've got all these amazing peer-reviewed studies that talk about you know uh, what happens in the body, what happens in the heart, what happens in the brain neurologically when you do these practices. Um, and I think this is this is the stuff that Jesus was intuiting two thousand years ago. Uh, he didn't have the Harvard-based <laughs> research to support what was happening neurologically—that his amygdala was shrinking and his hippocampus was growing.
0: There's a bit of social distancing by about two thousand years between him and them, but you know.
2: We
1: can... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but recognizing to me, I th- I think, and we know, like if. That if you do these practices, there was a great study by Dr. Cheryl Lazar out of Mass General uh, in Massachusetts that at eight weeks of these kind of practices, they measured your brain structure. And they after just eight weeks, you, you shrunk your amygdala, which is that primitive fight or flight part of the brain. Uh, it less gray matter density. And there was greater gray matter density on your frontal lobe, including those areas uh, that manage uh, self-awareness and compassion and your memory. After just eight weeks, you literally shrunk your amygdala and grew your awareness and presence so that every second of life would be perceived with less anxiety and more compassionate presence. That's just after eight weeks.
0: And that, th- that puts the, the neuroplasticity of the brain at that level, at the same level of plasticity as the body, because in eight weeks, you can train and end up with your superhero body same kind of thing eight weeks train to hit like for most people their peak physical condition you can you can do that as well any eight-week program in that sense is going to yield good good results but a uh, but a once-off is never gonna is never gonna do that yeah
1: no and and that's what all the studies say and this is why i think Again, I love just, again, taking it back to the New Testament, that Jesus often went off to lonely places, right? And we, what, I would love to know what his brain looked like. You know, how small was his amygdala? How big was his frontal lobe? You know, because, and, and the same with Gandhi, the same with Buddha, the, with these people that practice uh, mindfulness and contemplative spirituality and, and, and spiritual practice that we know physiologically, neurologically, biologically, and then they have an experience of less anxiety, more presence. And, and I believe that's, you grow in awareness. And again, we can trace this neurologically and explain it that way, but but I think it's nested in something much larger in terms of spiritual reality of that deep sense of intimacy and connection, uh, with, with God. And I don't really care what people call it. I don't care if they call it God. Uh, uh, I, but, but to me, I know that if they do this, they're going to be a much more loving, present, happy, engaged person in their life, whatever that looks like. And and so we've chosen to nest it all within the Christian wisdom tradition. Um, and because I, I am, a, I'm an Episcopal priest and that's my wheelhouse, you know, that's my, that's my root structure. So I, I did, I, I was debating about whether, you know, I grew up in Asia too. So I was debating about whether should I flop over to uh, flip over to Buddhism. Uh, and then I just realized like, look, this Christianity is so deep in my DNA. And just like someone said to Thomas Merton, look, all the good stuff is there in your tradition too. You just got to find it. Uh, so merton went back and found it you know within uh, our the, the christian tradition and so that to me is my heart too is is offering this amazing practical useful tools uh to shift from mere intellectual belief systems to an actual inner experience of connection
0: so so i i, I find it interesting that in, in some ways um what the language of wisdom tradition is very new historically speaking if we, if we look back, it, it's only around about uh, 200 years or so that we are in a position where people go, oh, hang on. People have genuine experience of the divine um, or of the transcendent, which may be impersonal. It may be personal. Um, and around the world, it seems to be hardwired in people's DNA to, be, to have an orientation towards the divine, to look towards the horizon. And um, and so so I was I was musing it on uh, the other day, and, and the language of pilgrimage is just so central to this. The language of journey, and so in some ways, I think we've got we've got historical pilgrims that go back to a specific religious tradition. We've got psychological pilgrims in our age, and of course through psychology, union, stuff, and that we're enabled to process the inner life and to do a pilgrimage there and arrive at a place of of, of needing. Um, uh, connection um but and and then we've got these cosmological pilgrims the scientists who are processing their looking out and all we we're all dealing with different senses of scale and and reach but we're all wrestling with how to be fundamentally present in the present and we arrive at the same problem yes. the problem of go of of god in the sense of going is what lies beyond, personal and impersonal, how can I reach it, and what reaches mm. back to me. We all arrive mm. at a similar place of going yeah. in an absolute sense, I'm never going to understand this. In an absolute sense, I can't take mm-hmm. it and give it to someone else. Everyone has to discover it for themselves in the first person, present con- continuous. Right. And we arrive at different languages for it, but there's this interplay because not all wisdom traditions agree in terms of the who or the what we engage and not all of them have the sense sure. of something became present to me um and so mm. it's I, I feel like it's easy to become schooled into the i don't care what people call it but how does one make sense of one's own experience then whether something has arrived and spoken to you or met you or right. something hasn't because the blind man reaching in the dark and feeling the elephant does not apply in this case to your story.
1: Right. Right. That's a great, that's a great point. Yeah.
0: So, so just in terms of playing a little bit, wrestling with it, without a specific question related to that, I, you know, how, you know, how do you respond to that? What do you, what do you make of that? Mm.
1: No, that's, that's, I think that's a really good point in terms of one of the things we do even at second breath before we even introduce uh, a spiritual practice is we, we do nest it in teaching that is, is resonant again with science. And, and again, when I talk about the wisdom tradition, and I, I'll just divert quickly to kind of my particular definition of the wisdom tradition, um, that in the, uh, uh, in the East and in the first century in particular, there was a unique milieu of spiritual teacher uh, that uh, was not about downloading information, or trying to get people to absorb their teaching and be able to regurgitate it, that their primary work was examining existing paradigms and uh, systems of thought. And then typically uh, through riddles, through parables, through stories, uh, they would launch a grenade into that person's existing worldview to kind of blow it <laughs> up and invite them into a much more expanded uh, uh, perception of reality for, for, for example and and jesus was a teacher in the wisdom tradition if he was in any american church teaching like he did 2000 years ago they'd hate him because uh what we like oh yeah 100% fireable, as crucifiable
0: today as then <laughs>
1: uh, yeah uh, right i mean you just i mean we what we like are ted talks right like with with it's it's 15 minutes long it's great research it comes with three good points and an emotional story you know, that we can take home you know and and his and tells you how to think and tells you how to think. And, and versus Jesus, his whole thing was, no one understood any time he would tell a story. He was intentionally ambiguous because he was trying to poke holes in people's worldview and invite them to chew, like a Cohen, like a like an a Eastern riddle. And and this is what, when we understand Jesus's wisdom teacher, I'm not trying to detract any from the Jesus people are more familiar with, maybe the second person of the Trinity, or the Godhead, but He was also a wisdom teacher teaching us how to live fully now, to experience fullness of life and to live into our full potential as humans in the here and now. And so this makes sense then if he goes to the rich young ruler and says, he only said it to him, he sized up the guy, realized this poor guy's uh, wealth was actually choking his life out. And so he said to him, sell everything you have and give it to the poor Then come and follow me. What, that, what he was doing was putting a stick in the spokes of this guy's worldview so that he would fly over the handlebars. And it said he went away sad because he was really rich. And Jesus didn't go after him and say, hold on, let me explain it to you. Like he was intentionally blowing up his paradigm to invite him to something more beautiful. Same thing with the Pharisees when he would say, you're whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones inside. He, was, he saw they were calcified in their self-righteousness, and he was intentionally throwing a grenade into their paradigm out of love to invite them to a new way to see everything to experience fullness of life now. And he modeled that. And so the, the wisdom tradition and every faith tradition is about living life fully in the now and constantly the willingness to expand our paradigms, uh, to open up to a, a new way of, of seeing everything. Jesus called that new way of seeing everything, the kingdom of God, which isn't a place you go to. It's a new lens on reality. That's my, that's my interpretation of that and so 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 to me when i talk about the wisdom tradition there is the 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 sufis are what would be easily identified as the wisdom tradition within islam uh with the poets hafiz and rumi and there is a wisdom tradition and
0: and and they were they were neighbors to the desert fathers and that as well you know they yeah
1: exactly and and that whole heart right is there going into the desert seeking hezekiah you know seeking that that deep peace and so, so to me, that that's kind of the root structure of of uh, of wisdom tradition. Um, and so, and to your point, you're right. When when it was a little flippant for me to say, I don't care what you call it, um, because uh, in it, 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 at second breath, we spend quite a bit of time building an intellectual framework that actually is resonant with tradition and and science and and their experience, so that when when they have an experience in spiritual practice, they have a scaffolding to hang it on Uh, because you're right. If you don't have an intellectual framework that's congruent, then we'll have a contemplative time and just say, Oh, well, that was weird. Maybe it was just a, a bit of beef I ate for lunch or, you know, we, we don't, we could, we could just slough it off. But if we can nest it in an intellectual framework, that's congruent with our experience and with reality uh, then in our tradition, then all of a sudden it, it creates the it creates fertile soil for it to take root. And so you're right, it, when I'm when I am in a non spiritual overtly spiritual context, or I'm teaching in a secular context, I still nest it in jungian psychology and uh harvard studies on neuroscience so that we create an intellectual framework that can sustain it but in, in that sense i don't need them to call it jesus I, I,
0: absolutely and I, and I would agree with you because in that sense it's, it's a question about h- how do you facilitate the process of someone to become present and start that journey f- themselves in terms of the inward life in terms of the contemplative life and how do we end up with a contemplative life that is very non-traditional because classically we mm. we grow a beard twice sure. the length of steves we become a hermit in the woods <laughs> <laughs> we give up <laughs> wealth and family and, and even within the eastern orthodox tradition right. there's only three people and i can't name them all fair that they they recognize as attaining relational union with god everyone else is just dystopian so mm. if we take the breadth of 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 Eastern Orthodoxy, and the mystical theology that they have. They don't have this the the split between the mystical and the and the rational that we do. So for them, theology is deeply mystical. Right. Is an intertwining there that you you can get away yes. from. It's actually quite foreign to our Western way of thinking. So you know, it's not something to dwell too much on. Mm-hmm. But within these great traditions, what we often end up with is 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 we collapse. We, we, we collapse the idea that we have experienced the divine into the fact that we've had the practice or we're engaging in the practice. And we're mm. not necessarily enabling people to go from, I've caught a glimpse of this God that I don't know, that has reoriented my life. It's given me life and purpose and meaning. I was going to off myself. Uh, I now have a sense of purpose mm. and meaning. Uh, how do we link that to the I'm growing in the depth of relationship with someone that I'm coming to know better over time. Because what we often end up with, and it's, it's something that, that Steve and I have mused about quite often um, uh, in between conversations or podcasts, is how often people have an early experience, and they trade that experience that, which is actually, when, when we dig into the tra- relational transactions, it's a relational engagement. People start with a relational engagement, and they trade that out for the idea that you have faith, and we don't trust experience. What you're talking right. about here is something that's quite different, because you, in some senses, I, I, I am putting words in your mouth, and I don't know you that well, but in some senses, you started all from a relational engagement. You were schooled into a faith, and then at the position where you're, you're really struggling with that, but you're actually quite successful career-wise in terms of church planting things should be going well for you, but you're dying at home. You and Beth are dying in yourselves and with each other. And yeah, you rediscover something. What is that? Was that a rebuilding of your relationship with God, a reconnecting with what you'd experienced before? How does that, how does that tie together? How does contemplation for you tie to that initial engagement that you had?
1: That's, that's a really good question. And of course my, I would say that over, over time, not, not only does my, and, and it's, it's inseparable, but my experience, uh, in, in, in practice, well, in life, but then in, in practice, uh, my, my concept of God would shift and grow. And my understanding, of course, when I was brand new Christian, it was, uh, that, that big King in the sky with a white beard, uh, that is in total control of everything. So I don't have to worry. Um, and uh, you know, Sistine Chapel-esque, and, and then that begins to uh, evolve uh, into something different. And now, even uh, as, w- w- whereas I, I don't believe in a, uh, currently a particular like uh, uh, being uh, per se of, as if we would perceive it in, as a person, you know, um, but, but that I do believe there is this experience of intimate connection uh, with this infinite mystery we call God that's inseparable. Um, and, and so, yes, I would say the relationship deepened, but also the context and definition of the parties within the relationship radically evolved and, and shifted and expanded. and And that expansion happened more through well, certainly. I mean, I'm a bibliophile. I love reading. I read all the time. And certainly it's influenced by uh, thinkers and people that have gone ahead of me. But I would say it's, it's, it's metabolized and it, it changes me when I experience them primarily in my real life. Um, and so, yes, I would say that there's a deepening of the relationship, uh, not kind of the classic relationship of me and, me and God are best buddies. <laughs> Uh, mm. you know kind of a chummy thing
0: uh, that idea is a is a myth that we perpetuate in Christianity I I, I feel I, I feel like we've got a religion that that talks in relational language as though we are supposed to know God but it qualifies that to say <laughs> once once your ticket is punched not this end <laughs> and the yeah. Right. So the only that, way, so, technically, you get true. to know God is you've got to go back to this book and read this book, and that's not Jesus's message. It's not right. Paul's message. It's not. It's not even. It's not. No. It's not even Trinitarian language in any way or form. Right. Mm-mm. So there's there's a gap. There's a very big gap between almost the dogmatic, the institutional, on one hand, and then on the other hand, sure. we end up with the contemplative. And there's, there's no easy bridge between the two, because often it is seen as right. one, one leaves or one finds a way to use Christian symbols and language, but the question becomes, are we still, is it still a relationship with that same God? On the flip side, mm. I think we've got to ask it for the traditionist as well, and especially the dogmatic or the naive theist. Sure. Um, We've got to bring them to the place where they recognize that they're not having a relationship with God. They're having a relationship with an idea mm-hmm. of God, and that's what faith is about. And where's the fine line between mm. the emperor's new clothes and faith? There, there, there isn't. You can have two people in the same environment and one goes, I don't experience God and the evidence for God existing is my faith. And someone else going i don't experience god yeah and the, i don't see why i have to put up with the idea of it and so it's easy to end up with a naive theism and a dogmatic mm. atheism in that
1: environment sure it's safe it's, it's and like like for me it was a necessary lily pad you know on the journey but a lot of people get stuck there for their whole lives
0: but what people are often looking for is they're looking for the same kind of dogmatic certainty as a, while one is in process on a journey like this. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, those
2: two <laughs> not do not, mate. those are not, bad not bad so, bad. Even close. <laughs> not even housemates. So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> not, not even <laughs> neighbors. <laughs> so, so in some ways, I feel like w- what happens here is, is this is the kind of journey for someone who is, is looking for a deeper integration in life. But is also willing to take the risk of going, as much as I believe about God, I don't actually know God, I'm Mm. prepared Mm -hmm. to risk that certainty to go through this process of waiting on God. Yeah. And in that, my dear of God may hit another logical extreme. Or an illogical extreme. I may give up. I may. Yes. I may end up changing faiths and beliefs. I might go from the idea of believing in a personal god to That's believing right. that there is no personal god. Somewhere in between is going to be this ridiculously complex philosophical construct that most of us are never getting to get into. You know, absolutes, objective apophaticism, mm-hmm. relative subjective apophaticism, mm-hmm. all the interrelationships <laughs> between them. The, the 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 non-being as fundamentally non-personal this non-being that lies beyond it's fundamentally the self-revealing one we can talk about all of that and we can we can codify that we can put it in our structures but what we're fundamentally doing and talking about here is the willingness to set that aside to go i want to wait i want to meet i'm opening an invitation and and trading i guess what is what we usually have is the activities of faith you know i worship i preach Mm. i go to church i serve the poor this is the up. Op- this is right. The, yeah. the technologies yeah. that we and, in- and this employ. ends up being the opposite of that because it's the withdrawal to the quiet. It's an invitational, but it's a it's an act of invitation. Mm. It's a it's a receptive waiting and the question of going. I can't control yeah what speaks to me and how, but I've got to trust and be open. I I mean I'm rambling here, but like
1: no, I I really I resonate and I and I think it makes me think about that the reality that paradigms and our worldviews are not predominantly rational. I think they're predominantly mm-hmm. driven uh, by primal impulse and emotion. It's kind of like the elephant rider, you know, the the heart is the elephant and the brain is the rider. And in general, the the rider can tell it where to go, but when the heart's going to go somewhere, it's going to go. And, and it's going to tromp through the jungle and nothing's stopping it. And, uh, most of us, we, we glom onto our existing paradigms because they've created some sense of safety, security, some sense of connection, relational connection usually. And we can, uh, and, and again, because we're neurologically hardwired to resist change. And I also think we usually, we, we also just emotionally unwilling to challenge our existing paradigms. Well, honestly, we don't even know we're in a paradigm until it begins to be poked full of holes and we realize it doesn't hold water. And usually it takes desperation. And again, desperation creates the space for us to be willing to expand. And I view it like I know that no matter how far out of a new experience and expansion, new theology, new teaching, uh, new practices that have blown the doors wide open. And I feel like I'm in a wide open green field in terms of my inner life. I know within a few weeks or at least a few months, it's going to be constrictive again, like a cocoon. And I'm going to have to bust out. It's like a trapeze artist you're sitting there happily on your trapeze bar and then all of a sudden one day out of the blue a new trapeze bar starts flying at you and it's always that terrifying process of am i willing to let go of what i hold on to so dearly and once you reach that point of desperation then you have that utterly terrifying in-betweenness where you have deconstructed your current system but you have not yet reconstructed you have not yet reached the new trapeze bar and you're floating in the not you know nether region Uh, and, but then finally you grab a new trapeze bar and you say, oh God, I've evolved so much. And then I know unequivocally that within a few months, there's going to be a new trapeze bar because that's the journey of life. You know, to me, this is the, this is the joy of the experience, not creating a static structure built of brick dogmatic beliefs so that I can weather any storm. But like you said, it's a pilgrimage. It is the journey from, uh, the, from Egypt through the wilderness, and in that process of the wilderness, we both encounter the wild things and we encounter God. And you don't get to experience the promised land unless you're willing to consistently make that journey through the wilderness. And that to me, and by promised land is that growing.
0: And it's the people you've got to put up with along the way as well, because they're also an important part of the story.
1: Right, right. And, then, and then they have to put up with me. Then they have to put it's up a with me. When, when I'm dealing with the wild things. Yeah. When I'm, when I'm dealing with the wild things in the wilderness and I'm not pleasant to be around, yeah, my poor wife and kids. Uh, but, but anyway, I, I don't, but I, but I think I really resonate with what you're, and, and one other point to, to something you said earlier, you know, one of the things we're trying to evolve, of course, the, the, the monastic movement was a reaction uh, uh, to, you know, even the desert fathers and mothers were trying to escape the insanity of busyness and this, you know, the same thing that we have that same impulse, and then, so they wanted to go to this distraction-free wilderness, again, where the wild things are and where God is, and the monastic movement, you know, emerged, and now, the danger when we talk about contemplative spirituality, and the first reason I think people don't practice these spiritual practices is because they have a, a criteria for evaluating success that they think they're a failure. The second is that we people try to just to attempt to microdose the monastic life into our busy non-monastic reality. And it doesn't work that way. That we can take we have to adapt spirit contemplative spirituality into the flow of real life. So we, we create resources for when you're sitting at a red light and you feel your frustration growing, when you're standing in line at the grocery store, or when, when you get that call from someone that you don't want to talk to and your blood pressure increases. That, that all throughout the day, how to actually, that, that while the monastics are great, honestly, unless you are an extreme introvert that doesn't really li- like to be around people, it's not going to be for you. Uh, for, for, for most folks, you know, and especially for me, an extreme extrovert with ADHD, I'm not going to go to a monastery <laughs> for, for years. But what we found is that you can actually incorporate this beautiful contemplative spirituality into our busy lives. And it, of course, it takes us creating some space of nothing time, of busylessness time, but we can actually incorporate it in a way that creates space for authentic connection with the divine I, I, even when we're busy as bees. i, I, I p- part
0: of me goes uh, i'd love to turn you to a chair for a few days and just see what happens what comes out but
1: <laughs> 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 um, go, go, going
0: back to something that you said earlier solitude is one of those 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 interesting things because yes you know earlier you said we torture prisoners by putting them alone we by self isolation that but on the flip side all these great figures that we look at are people that did the same thing and that this this time with myself you know people really push through that Friday night where you're alone you're feeling discomfort what do they do well let's go out for a drink let's go connect with people let's go watch a movie let's do that that discomfort alone time is not time people spend alone and what the basics of the contemplative side is is to go, let me sit with that feeling, let me sit with those thoughts, those memories, mm. let me sit with those desires, and let me make somewhat, if I can't make friends with them, I'm not looking to tame them, but it becomes informative. It becomes mm. it becomes something we get to know mm. ourselves in that. Um, and then, of course, that language of knowing ourselves then taps into a theoretical larger body of work or framework and that and the challenge is really to go let's let's let go of that because this is not fundamentally a practice because a lot of Christians feel that the minute you go down this route oh Greg that's new age like can't go there buddy Satan's going to get you all right oh uh, yeah uh, yeah or Steve come on that's Eastern man that's radical like just look just look what they did over (laughs) years but but I feel like in some ways what we don't what we, what we fail to recognize is, is it's almost like we've got two streams that play off against each other in our Western heritage, you know, certainly looking at the Christian heritage. And the first institution that was created by the people that were wrestling with how do you follow Jesus is the monastic institution. That precedes the creation of the Orthodox Church and the state funded temple reboots. And there's two very different lines of thinking. The one focuses on we are separated through sin. You can't have God as your father. No, yeah, unless you have the church as your mother. So you have to be part of the Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. And that's a, <laughs> that's a strict thing. And it's easy to track that, because when you go to seminary, that's a story that you hear. We also hear about those kooks in the desert oh, and yeah. monasteries and that kind of stuff. But they're not part of the story. They're not really part of the story. And where they come in is, oh well, monasticism right. was a thing. We're done with that. Oh, a classism was a thing. And then and then we had indulgences. And right. that was the final straw. And thank God for Luther. But, <laughs> but we don't recognize <laughs> things like that. The text Luther himself was basically went, the text you absolutely have to read next to the Bible is the Theologia uh, Germanica. It's the it's a mystical text of unknown authorship from that period. All of the ideas that he brings in, all the things that come in, the middle way, preaching in the language of the people, uh, serving without having to become a monastic or a priest, you um, reading the Bible for yourself yeah. devotionally. All of those were contributed by these monastics. Um, you know, yep. and in a sense, there's very little about that Reformation that is new. It's, you know. Absolutely, and, and, and we you're don't absolutely know that right. As a as a history, so especially within anything on the Protestant side of the fence, we treat all of that as though we threw yeah. that out. Why? Because we threw out this radical <laughs> monastic framework, and you know, and, and we threw out their method of biblical interpretation, which is all allegorical, which actually wasn't the case. They they foundationally give us the devotional reading of the Bible. And then the church bans the reading of the Bible <laughs> twice in history because mm. they didn't. So there's, there's a lot here that, 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 that people don't know about, that we're not exposed to, that we don't know how to recapture.
1: I, 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 I think that's a, a, a gorgeous uh, synopsis of the reality that we've uh, separated the two. Um, and oftentimes, I mean, even, even in and this the way that I think it's settled down on the micro level within individual parishes or churches that I've experienced is that within a single parish, you might have those that are interested in contemplative spirituality. And then you have those that are into activism and social justice. And, but there tend to be two very different groups. It's, it's almost as if one is committed to the inner journey and one is committed to the outer journey. And uh, the reality is they're inseparable. I mean, our, our whole thing at second breath, our tagline is that great outer work arises from great inner work that you, you can't have one without the other genuinely. Um, and so, but to me that, that separation I think has, has, has done so much damage. Um, and, and certainly I think it's easy to rail against the, uh, The institutional church, and there is that empire aspect. Of course, you know what we we can. Lots of books are written about how Constantine messed it all up, and uh, and it became an empire top down, and uh, you know a a, a priestly caste uh, that had the power of the state behind them. And 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 I I would agree that there was a a lot of mess. A lot of mess there, and and anytime, and the empire was pretty committed to to squelching out uh, whether it was uh, Celtic spirituality or the Desert Fathers or Mothers. Um, but what but what you find is that um, no matter how hard, oftentimes the institution tried to to squelch it and snuff it. Every century, they would bubble up. It, it would just you you can't keep it down. Um, and, and so you have these gorgeous mystics that articulate this, uh, the spirituality of, of authentic experience. And it's in all of them, it's almost they're having this experience and attempting to put words to it rather than let me teach you this doctrine and adhere yeah. to, to determine who's in and who's out.
0: I love that as a summary. Contemplative spirituality is still something that within context like you're in, it's not the mainstream. How do you feel about
2: that?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's especially not, not not only, I mean, it's it, it add, add to the dimension, of the Bible belt, which if you haven't visited the Southeast, it is a very unique uh, place to be where, uh, you know, I get, I'll, I'll be, I've been, just because I'm an Episcopal priest, uh, let alone someone who focuses on contemplative spirituality. I mean, I've been, I've been called the Antichrist. I've been called a heretic. Uh and so, uh, but, you know, in some ways I've really grown accustomed to it with it kind of trying to keep a thick skin and a tender heart, because I know what they're doing is speaking from their fear based paradigm and they don't really mean it's not personal. Um, and so, but I really do feel like because of the transformation that occurred within my own life, within my wife's journey, and for all these people that we've seen at Second Breath, it really is, a. I feel like it's a calling that I'm passionate about and yeah I take hits uh, you know I take hits as the, the my, might be the woo woo guy or the weirdo or the out to lunch uh, that's one of the reasons we try to uh, you know every almost every time I teach something I I quote uh, a, a a study out of Oxford or Harvard or Stanford uh, you know for legitimacy and then quote some great uh, you know church mother or father you know I'm I'm pretty good at uh backing backing up my perspective uh, just for the sake of credibility within this context that's naturally uh, doubting me but uh and just doubting this this tradition and of course this is an ancient tradition with roots in every tr- you know way predating christianity and uh in terms of this kind of seeking
0: it's it's a fundamental human problem that's been with humanity since the beginning
1: yes and 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 the impulse and I think pilgrimage is a great example uh that you know i've i've had to pleasure and opportunity to walk the community of santiago uh, a number of times and you know of course even that ancient path when you study the history was it's been walked for thousands of years before christ uh and so you just realize it's it's this this natural human impulse for journey for discovery in seeking the divine uh we've been on it and so to me it's uh, my job is with my little part to help move the ball down the field towards compassion and connection. Uh, and, and that's, and and I've chosen to remain within Christianity and the Christian tradition where I know because of that, I take more hits than I might if I just was teaching at uh, a secular university. Um, uh, although academia <laughs> is just be, yeah. brutal, uh, as the church, uh, <laughs> but, but, that being said, to me, it's, it's the, the willingness. I, I feel so passionate about this, that it's, it's that willingness to, to take those hits for something that I think is so powerful and needed. Uh, j- just, just as y'all, I mean, I feel like the, the two of you with, with this podcast, and you know, I, 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 I shared this with you, but you, because of your willingness to be a bridge for people to not only deconstruct, which you have to have a safe place for deconstruction as you're challenged and scared and trying to figure that out as you know your current trapeze bar no longer is gonna hold your weight. And then through this podcast, you not only create space for the deconstructionist, but you create space for the in-betweenness where it's okay to hold the tension of not knowing and to live into that mystery. And then when you begin to reconstruct the new trapeze bar, the, the new evolutionary leap in your inner journey, that that's safe too. To me, like, and and I know, I can't imagine you guys haven't taken quite a bit of heat over the years, but, but just to me, that commitment born of your own journeys has given you the passion to create this space, regardless of it's because you know how this is exactly what the world needs right now. This loving safe space without judgment for whatever stage you are in the journey. I feel that same passion about spiritual practice in the wisdom tradition uh, that I know the power of these practices and and there are tools in the toolbox that are so practical and useful. And I want people to incorporate them into their journey, uh, wherever they are, uh, in, in, in that space. And, and because I know this is what changes lives. I've just seen it too many times.
2: Yeah. I really resonate with your passion there, Greg. And, and I'm certain I can quite freely speak for Tim in terms of that as well. Um, it's so wonderful to be in conversation with somebody of your depth of passion and insight and experience and history, I think, because you you tell your story so poignantly, both in terms of, of triumphs and high moments, but you're also just so equally vulnerable, and ready to speak in terms of, uh, of some of the harder moments, some of the more raw moments. Um, And ah, it's just a privilege. I've just uh, been sitting here for 20 minutes or so just listening to the two of you back and forth and loving it myself and almost forgetting I'm in on this. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well well, thank you all for uh, creating a, a safe space where I could uh feel free to be vulnerable. Oh, I appreciate anytime, it. Thank
2: anytime. you time. I hope we can have a number of different conversations over time as it goes forward, the three of us um loving this.
0: Same yeah.
1: Mm, I would love that. I would love yeah, that Yeah, I'm
0: I, I'm aware that we're going on for two hours now and I'm not sure what your time commitment is. I know that Steve is uh uh, threadbare <laughs> from the, the move, and must be really exhausted. But um, but I, but I just wanted to ask you um, because I I think for us at, at least, certainly from my side, this is an introductory conversation. It's the first time we're talking, we're getting to know each other. Um, I definitely yeah. see space for us to have uh, conversations going into the future. Love to have you back back for for more. But in a I nutshell. Would love that. Tell us about Second Breath Centre. Um, uh, perhaps uh, a um, a place, someone that can start with the contemplative stuff. Perhaps picking it up with you guys. Uh, w- I will put links in the um, in the actual like episode link and you know like blurb, the the, the show notes. Awesome. <laughs> show notes. <laughs> there we go. That's the way. You're having to rely on nice. video
2: now. Your l- words are leaving you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah. uh, Well, I would love to share, you know, one of the things again, because we're so passionate about uh, this, that we're trying to make it as easy and accessible for people as possible. So the first, one of the things we're excited about, we created a second breath app that has hundreds of spiritual practices on it. It has uh, a daily practice that you can choose five, 10 or 20 minutes. We have a practice of the week. We create series uh, where it is a blend of Christian wisdom with science. So for example, we might, uh, look at a, a seven-day mini-series on science. I'm um, excuse me on forgiveness, and we'll look at the science of forgiveness and the impact of it physiologically. And then we'll take the teaching of Bishop Desmond Tutu, who embodied the power of forgiveness in fighting apartheid South Africa, and then. Based on the wisdom and the uh, uh, science, we offer specific spiritual practices to help guide people through the process of forgiveness. We have the same thing for sleeping well. We have the same thing for transformation, for developing friendships and connection. And every month we have a new series. And then we divide it into head, heart, and body, um, where we have practices that are designed specifically to help quiet the mind, practices designed specifically to help open the heart, and practices to help unbrace and ground the body and there's hundreds and hundreds we're adding new practices all the time um it is an amazing i mean it's now all over the world which we're excited about it's fun to to watch all the users pop up around the globe and a lot of it you 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 can have a ton of it is for absolute for free in, in perpetuity you can access a ton of the content for free forever Uh, to get to some of the premium content there's a fee just because of course we have to sustain ourselves and be Ah, able to it's not cheap to do this kind of thing you actually need to eat (laughs) that's right that's right do do not muzzle the ox while it's treading grain and so um and so so we anyway but that app it's on google play and on the apple app store that's the first thing to check out and it's really easy and accessible and it kind of a a non-threat way to to ease into it Uh, We also at at secondbreastcenter.com, we have our online school uh, and we're in that process of taking these courses that we've been teaching for 30 years and putting them into a very robust, engaging digital context that you can either take individually or with a cohort and group. And the first one, that to me is the game changer and it's kind of the, the bedrock of of second breath is the inward journey. Uh, And then we're right now in the process of recording the outward journey, the kind of the bookends, the elegant bookends of our, our approach, but it is a, uh, a beautiful deep dive experiential. We take technology and instead of making it a hindrance, we found all these ways to really make it engaging and amazing. And it is, it is a deep dive, man. It is a, if, if you choose to take the course, it is, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's going to take you there. And if, anyway, go, if they go to the website, they can just check it out and learn more about it. Um, but that would be the easiest way wherever they are in whatever stage of the journey, that app and the inward journey, uh, it, it's all about giving people the map and the flashlight and the toolbox to really begin to walk the inward journey of faith, to cultivate a vibrant spirituality and a growing awareness of our already existing connection. Oh,
2: that's super exciting, Greg. I'm looking forward to being able to share that. Uh, yeah, we love it. We're excited with, with our listeners. Um, and just as widely as we can sure
1: awesome awesome well thank you it's we're, we're really excited about it we're passionate about it too
2: yeah i mean that comes across very very strongly um and yeah <laughs> can, can we tell
1: am i jumping around am i jumping I've ha- i have remained seated the entire conversation i have not jumped up around the room but aside from that my my energy, I think, flows. No, it's fantastic, man. Sometimes. I mean,
2: that's, it's just, it's this kind of genuine conversation, as you say, where we can speak freely, but uh, the energy is there, and I completely connect with it. Um, in Perhaps uh, in the only way, it's slightly incongruent, and is, is that contemplative spirituality is often portrayed as so calm and quiet and dusty oh, yeah. in terms of my. Terms of my experience the third the no. <laughs> third the third misnomer the
1: the third thing that keeps them the third people. thing that i'm, I'm serious yes, it, yeah. it, it, it well yeah you just you you think you're supposed to become dour and and serious and and the reality this, this is this is these practices connect you with joy i mean the the ultimate experience is that fruit of the spirit that that love joy peace patience kindness all that that joy is, is the fruit of connection. And so it's not about becoming dour. That's another misnomer that we're constantly are trying to invite people to heal from that delusion that that we can experience. This this is something that will make us more fully human and living our full potential uh, in this short journey. No, we it's have. very,
2: very special. I'm, I'm so certain that our listeners are going to connect completely with the energy around um, what you guys are busy with.
0: Yeah, I, I just want to say thank you so much for For joining us and connecting us, Uh, you know, it's like, you know, Steve and I constantly say we are we are so privileged to connect with people at such a vulnerable, raw, authentic level, you know, Um, and to gain a sense of that perspective, you know, how does how does this lived experience, this lived reality, this engagement with the divine tap into the work that you're doing, rather than putting the work first, you know. you know it's mm. yeah it's just such a wonderful privilege and i like like thank you for the for being willing to be vulnerable and to have this conversation with us it's a real real honor and a real privilege
1: well thank thanks for letting me be here it's been a, a joy i feel like a, a full sponge <laughs> you know uh, after Likewise. talking with you two uh, i feel happy and just I just feel I feel very just honored to be here. So thanks for having me. It was it was a real privilege. It's
2: it's such a gift, man. We so appreciate you looking us up, um, and being in touch with us. And I really echo what Tim said earlier, and I meant it as well. I would love to to do a lot more conversations, the three of us looking into the future. Um, That'd be great. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. You've been very very generous.